Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hello, I'm Amena Gildabarkabella, the Energy and Climate Advisor at Global Council, where today I'm joined by my fellow GC advisor, Dr. Harpreet Sood. As well as working closely with our health practice, Harpreet is a practicing clinician in the NHS. Previously, he used to work with NHS England, and he has a huge amount of experience in health policy and what's going on in the horizon. At the end of last year, I held a series of discussions asking what we need to get to net zero, which made me think about net zero and how it affects other areas of policy. Today, we'll be discussing the impact of climate change and what it has on human health. We'll be covering a couple of different points, climate change and how it exacerbates weather patterns, the role that climate has on infectious diseases, and of course, what governments can do about it. Harpreet, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been great to be able to connect with you a bit on this topic. As I said, we're going to kick off by talking about exacerbated weather patterns and how this affects human health. Uh, As you know, I'm from Australia, where we've seen vulnerable populations that have been exposed to uh, increasing amounts of heat. Our summers are getting hotter. I was wondering if you could shed some light on on what that means for, uh, for human health generally and how policy can mitigate some of those issues. Yeah, thanks, Amanda. It's great to be here and and really, really good to be talking about this topic. So I think one of the key things, um, which hopefully we'll come on to later, is is really understanding how much healthcare professionals and health systems are really understanding this agenda. I think um, the impact of climate and on healthcare, the evidence is now being generated and we're starting to see the impact on that. So if I pick up on the first point around weather patterns. I mean, you you know, it's clear that over the last kind of decade or so, there's been an increase in in the number of days of people who have been exposed to heat waves. And I think that number is rising. And in a recent Lancet Commission, which has been well publicized, has shown that in 2019 alone, there were 475 million additional exposure events to heat waves and and, and what that means. Um, And, you know, that is a challenge. And predicted temperature rise is by around four degrees that we'll see by the end of the century. So you can see that there are consequences with what this means. So what does that mean in terms of higher temperatures? Well, things like heat exhaustion, heat strokes, hypothermia, dehydration. I mean, these are, uh, you know, in extreme cases can cause death. Uh, And what is more is that they can also worsen uh, pre-existing conditions such as high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, respiratory kidney and diabetes related conditions. So just as an example, in 2003, the European heat wave that we have was responsible for nearly 70,000 premature deaths. And so, you know, when we think about the morbidity and mortality due to extreme heat can often be quite consequential because of what we're seeing in the rise in temperatures and what we're seeing with the, the issues around that. And that only is not just linked with higher temperatures. We've got issues around severe storms and the impact that's having. So uh, we saw that the uh, devastation that was caused by Hurricane Harvey uh, in, the, in the Gulf surface, where the temperature on record there had never fallen below 23 degrees. And again, accounts for nearly 3,000 deaths, which was part of the uh, 2017 Atlantic hurricane season. So you can see that as we start capturing some of this and collecting the data around it, there are impacts uh, on that. And then with rising sea levels and thinking about droughts and fires as well. So 
all of that is, is hugely consequential. Now, the, the challenge with this is that with climate change, there is a long list of kind of mental and behavioral health conditions as well, which which have been exacerbated. And, um, you know, on the whole, this also has an impact on the worldwide economy. So we have a challenge on our hands and we need to get a better understanding of, of where this is all going. But these are some of the early things that we are seeing with what climate can have on human health and the issues with that. You mentioned before um, the 2000 and I think it was the 2003 heatwave, the European yeah. heatwave, and we have some really interesting data on uh, the sorts of things that happen from heatwaves. Are our hospital systems capable of dealing with uh, with the exacerbated health issues that arise from it? Or do they do they brace themselves? I mean, what happens inside a hospital when you see, uh, you know, a, a 35 degree day on the on, on the horizon? Well, depending on where you are, but if, if you're in the NHS, it's it's very difficult, um, very difficult because often these hospitals have not been built with this in mind. Ventilation systems are there, but there is often not uh, air conditioning. Uh, the temperature is rising, so that makes it difficult to not only work in, but also thinking about how do we keep temperatures cool. And it could become uh, a very difficult environment to work in, uh, especially some of the older buildings that we have across NHS hospitals in, in the UK in particular. Now, that's not the case throughout the world, but but in particular, those uh, health systems that haven't invested enough capital uh, investment into their infrastructure, there are consequences with that. Um, and, and often you also don't know, you see that many of the people that are coming in are coming in because of uh, necessary the direct causation through extreme weather patterns and, and what, what that might mean. And, and so this is more about how do we develop an infrastructure that collects data that gives us a better understanding of why certain conditions uh, are being exacerbated, but also the impact on mobility and mortality. So, so on the whole, the, the simple answer to the question is that many of the hospitals are not equipped with uh, the, the rising demand because of the impact that climate change has on, on health. And of course, the same would probably go for many of the workplaces. I mean, workplaces aren't necessarily designed, especially especially in Europe, they're not necessarily designed to have extreme heat temperatures and for those days to, to be uh, increasingly numer numerous throughout the year. Uh, does that, I, I imagine that that would also have an impact on uh, hospital, hospital admissions and uh, increase in, in, in medical episodes? Yes, absolutely. And, and, and you know, and, and so one of the things we have to think about is, as health systems start, well, in particular with what's happened in the last kind of 14 to 15 months with, with the pandemic, um, you know, how many have responded to that, you know, there has been an increasing shift in focus to think about home care, community care, primary care, as well as rather than just simply relying on hospitals. So, so we need to think about from, from a health system's perspective is what does that mean in terms of the service provision now? Not everything needs to be provided in a hospital. You know, there are opportunities now to think about remote monitoring, to think about the use of technology, think about how uh, we may redesign some of the ways we can provide care. So, so on that basis, I think there's potentially a lot of opportunities. Um, and, and the likes of telemedicine, for example, has given us the opportunity to interact with our patients, uh, not necessarily having to see them in a hospital setting. So, so I think there, there are uh, huge potentials around redesigning some of the way we deliver care, but at the same time, we need to think about that. We don't also miss the miss those individuals that need most help in a health setting. And I think that's where the ongoing challenge would be. So that then therefore requires our workforce to be, uh, you know, well versed in what this might mean, what what the impact of climate is having on health, and and the consequences of that. So I think it's 
it's, it's kind of not a one size fits all answer here. It's, it's a multiple things that need to be thought through. And of course, that doesn't, I mean, we, we, we started talking about heat, but of course, um, there are other extreme climatic episodes which can, which can occur. We saw in Texas earlier this year that there was a cold snap that, that basically brought much of Texas to a halt. Uh, we've seen that around the, the, the EU and in the UK as well. We've seen a series of droughts and, and you mentioned earlier heavy storms. Do you think that in those circumstances where people are, can be cut off that that telemedicine perhaps has the potential to really to really push through and to provide care there in those circumstances absolutely i think you know vulnerable patients can benefit from from such technologies i mean look we, we shouldn't take this for granted because of what we've also seen on the flip side of it is that this doesn't work for everyone so if i take an example you know the elderly in particular are vulnerable uh, since many of them are you know often immunocompromised they're prescribed certain medication that also can limit their thermoregulation, for example, uh, in terms of uh, how they respond to weather changes and, 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 and heat um, versus cold. Um, and, you know, many of them are also um, cognitively impaired and also socially isolated. So I think when you bring all that in together, we need to think about that um, patients are do need to be thought through uh, and how we help them. And yes, telemedicine and technology can play a role, but that shouldn't be the kind of sole way of thinking about this we need to think about a multi-pronged approach in terms of also at home care thinking about how we can develop infrastructures that allow nursing uh, care to be delivered in people's homes if they need it um, which which is a completely different way of how health care is delivered today it sounds like our health systems need to become in some ways just resilient, like many of our other, our energy systems, our technology systems as well. It's a healthcare is certainly not spared from it. I wanted to move on as well to discuss uh, infectious disease and the relationship between infectious disease and, and climate change. Um, obviously at the moment we have, we're living through a, a global pandemic, um, but we've certainly seen a rise in infectious disease, especially since uh, since the 1950s. I was wondering if you might be able to uh, maybe talk about the relationship between between climate and, and what that means for infectious disease. Yes, absolutely. So um, there's been a number of conditions in particular that we've seen rise due to you know, changes in weather patterns and, and what the climate uh, changes impacts on that so for example dengue uh, is increased by you know nearly 8.9 percent for, for, for the particular uh, 80s Egypti uh, kind of um, mosquito and then 15 percent for the 80s uh, albopictus as they call it so so we can see that, that there's been increase in dengue there's also been an increase in how uh, the transmission of malaria especially in highland areas in certain parts of Africa region um, and even in the western pacific region we've seen nearly 150% rise compared to baseline from the 1950s. So, so you can see that this change is really affecting the risk to humans and what that means for the distribution of many of these infectious diseases. And that also includes vector-borne, food-borne and water-borne diseases. And, and I think it's going to be an interesting uh, time to think about, well, how, how can we consider uh, tackling some of that? Um, and there is a really important part here for public health services to consider what this means for the short to medium term but also how climate will how climate change will continue to uh, impact some of this because of you know now with the increasing um, global porous that we have in terms of well not so much over the last kind of 14 50 months but at least travel people moving from uh, one part of the world to the other 
And so, you know, for example, even in London, if I take where I practice, we've seen a lot more patients who've come in with uh, diseases that are not usually seen in London. So, um, and that means that, again, we need to think about how our health system is responding to that because the classic picture of someone that comes in with dengue or malaria or other kind of um, conditions that have been driven by climate change, uh, they're not often as well recognised as they would be in certain parts of the world. And I think that also plays a part in then how well are they treated uh, based on that. So, so I think not only are we seeing a rise in many of these conditions, but also what that means for our patient populations who are coming into hospital. Certainly, I can imagine if someone presented in London with symptoms of dengue, you wouldn't you wouldn't immediately say exactly. it's like dengue fever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it would um, be, and then and then I think you know then you've got kind of other uh, conditions which can uh, you know link to that cause things like gastroenteritis. There might be certain issues with cholera, uh, sepsis, and, and again we may not see them all within our uh, in, in the UK Western nation setting, but these are all things that are exacerbated uh, in, in parts of the world where we are seeing a rise in these conditions. And of course, as businesses become more global, that must mean that businesses are therefore more exposed to, to these rates, to these higher rates of infectious diseases that you mentioned. Yes, to being exposed, but also at the same time, you know, putting in um, checks and balances in place that allow you to manage them as well, right? So with conditions like malaria and dengue you know there are preventive measures that you can put in place that you can you can minimize the risk of trans transmission or picking up so it's not necessarily saying that because we've seen a rise that everyone obviously the risk is, is much higher than it was previously so there is a responsibility for businesses i would say to think about well how are they protecting their staff especially those who are working in conditions that expose them to a higher risk of uh, conditions like um, dengue and malaria. And so, if you were if you were developing your internal policy on on you know high risk areas, would this be how would you approach um, how would you approach this this conundrum of okay, we have a number of workers that are going into high yeah. risk areas. We need to be thinking about coordinating about what their what a treatment plan could look. What would be the starting point there? Yeah, so I think that's. Really good question. I mean, look, there's 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 a number of prophylactic things that you can consider. Let's take malaria as an example. So you know, you, there are anti-malaria tablets that you can take uh, as as a prophylaxis that that uh, minimise the risk. There's you know things like you know classic things that we get told when we travel to uh, areas of high risk malaria. So covering you know uh, sleeves, uh, long sleeves to cover any exposed areas. Thinking about things like um, not you know not necessarily deep but equivalent to that that help prevent um the, the use of uh, well you know mosquitoes are not being attracted to your skin so how do we prevent that you know thinking about the timing of when workers are going out if they are working out in the field you know sometimes that whole dusk and dawn thing can can play a big role in terms of increasing the risk so so thinking about when workers are going out um and working in conditions that might be related to a higher risk uh we can consider uh, even education, right, providing some education material to many of the workers to make them understand the consequences of what this might mean, how they can prevent it, and, and how they can think about uh, protecting themselves. So, so I think it requires, a again, a, a holistic approach to this rather than uh, just giving guidance. I think it requires um, being more proactive. Rather than a clinical approach. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. and rather than uh, rather just handing tablets, I think it's more about saying how can we think about a holistic approach to this. 
That's um, that's super interesting, and I'm sure many of our listeners will be will be taking notes on that point. I wanted to move on to a, a term that two years ago or two and a half years ago, I was blissfully ignorant about, and that is zoonotic viruses, um, uh, which is, I mean, again, this is my very elementary understanding, but it's it's viruses that move from, from animals, uh, animals to humans. Uh, one of the impacts of climate change, of course, is as our land use changes, human mm. beings are uh, moving into areas, and we've been doing it, obviously, for millennia. Uh, we're moving into areas that were otherwise, uh, that were otherwise not habit- inhabited by humans. Uh, as we continue to encroach in, in the habitat of, of animals, uh, that then increases the, um, the risk of viruses jumping between, uh, between humans and animals. I was wondering if we could talk about that a little bit. Of course, there is a, a strong theory, and, and by all means, correct me if I've used the, the wrong vernacular, that the coronavirus would, is a zoonotical virus. It's, ones that, it's one that has, that has probably originated in, um, in animals and, and jumped across could we kind of shed a little bit of light on 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 what it means and 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 what the sorts of risks that are associated and whether or not we're going to see more of these sorts of viruses emerge in the future that, that, that great question and and uh, you're absolutely right and i think there is now uh increasing risk uh, of the um uh, kind of zoonotic infectious that we are seeing um across and you know just to be clear that zoonotic infections uh, well, zoonotic infectious diseases are at the kind of nexus between environmental changes, ecosystems and health. And I think we've seen that, you know, 2020 in particular will be remembered uh, for several of these zoonotic crises, including, for example, as we know, with COVID, um, we've, we've still got the kind of two concurrent uh, Ebola outbreaks in Congo. And then, you know, the highest ever kind of last surge fever in, um, in in Nigeria. So, and you know, as you know, many of these outbreaks do have a profound effect on public health, societies, and economies. And we need to think about, you know, how how do we prepare for such such um, uh, aspects of things? And the kind of animal to human transmission, in particular, is influenced by many of the environmental and and kind of socioeconomic processes that often help reshape the reservoir host communities and then bring people and livestock into contact with wildlife and in the shift in land use and food systems, deforestation and, and climate change. So bringing that all together, we've seen that uh, these pressures have escalated in the world uh, over the last kind of half century and, and therefore you know, zoonotic infections are emerging at an increasing rate. So what, what, what can we do about it? Well, we need to think about, you know, both in the short term, how we can from a health policy perspective, think about you know, forecasting for prevention and, and prioritizing clinical resources. But I think in the longer term, there needs to be much bigger debate and discussion and resources put together for strengthening health systems, thinking about diagnostic capacities, but also targeting vaccinations where they're available. Now, one of the great success stories in the UK has been the vaccination program, obviously uh, not only in terms of how quickly we've developed it, but also the rollout of it. And that's a testament to the strength of the system in the UK, but that is not being mirrored across the world. And and there are consequences of that eventually. So we need to think about how can we be better prepared for this, but also think about the impact the zoonotic infections are gonna have and zoonotic viruses are gonna have over the longer term, because like I said, this is becoming more and more uh, kind of overlapping with, with each other when it comes to uh, the ecosystem, the environment, but also how we are being exposed to this in, in uh, way through climate change. 
Do you think that that means we need to be investing more in, in research and innovation that targets that kind of Bermuda Triangle, so to speak, of, of all of those over, you know, where all of those, those um, the environmental impacts, the, the, the change in land use, the change in the climate, the, the change in, 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 human, in human patterns, the change in animal patterns. Mm. Is that where we need to be focusing a lot of our research and development, therefore, when it comes to vaccines? Or should we be looking at something like, you know, will, will an mRNA vaccine be able to be a, a, a cure-all um, or, or is that, do we, are we looking for kind of approaches that that could that can kind of be a silver bullet a series of silver bullets so to speak yeah absolutely well look i mean you know prevention is is always better than cure right and we need to think about um add to the list i think to what you've suggested we need to add urbanization because you know the world is you know getting richer you know cities are developing you know more and more people are moving into cities uh, and the extreme weather aspect of things which we discussed about earlier and and you know i think um, with all this, it's, it's very difficult, I know, to prevent some of the significant warming that we're seeing, but also we need to think about that, um, that there does need to be a lot more research that goes into it, but we also need to think about how do we protect the public health and build resilience uh, to the future zoonotic risk. And at this stage, COVID has, has clearly um, exposed some of the vulnerabilities that we have, um, but at the same time, it's also demonstrated um, the tremendous global network of researchers that have come together to help us understand that. But yes, more money will need to go in, more resources will need to go in. We need to think about you know, public health systems. We need to think about surveillance systems. We need to think about how can we pick a lot of this up earlier rather than um, relying on a world meltdown in some ways before we figure out how to, how to respond to it. Um, and, and I think um, you know, one potential application that we've seen which is an example of you know, what can be done is that we could predict seasonal risk of zoonosis from um, you know, environmentally linked demographic and infections uh, dynamics among certain reservoir species. But that's an example of how, whether when we have surveillance systems in place, we can really pick this up early and think about how we respond to it. So, and that will require a certain uh, increase in the level of R&D and investment um, and resources that gets poured into it so that we are much better prepared. So I think that brings us on perfectly to our, our our next point, which is, you know, what should health departments should do to be doing to address climate change, the impacts of climate change, the sorts of things that we've discussed before, the extreme wet weather patterns, you know, we've seen some movement. I know that the German Federal Ministry of Health has, has established a, a dedicated department in, in my home country in Australia. Um, the West Australian government has, um, has, has addressed climate as an issue. It's, it's, it's got, you know, it's got its first climate and health inquiry that, that took place in 2016. If you know you've been working, you've worked for NHS England in the past. If you were advising NHS England on on how to address climate change and how they should be preparing for it, what what would be your your kind of opening argument? Well, first and foremost, we must acknowledge that NHS England has demonstrated a, a, a tremendous commitment to this, not only in terms of resources, but also by setting up a team and and, and um, a leadership team in particular led by Dr. Nick Watts, who, who is leading the charge on this. So, so you know, great um, to see that kind of playing out. But, but, but I think on the broader aspects of things, it, it's really important to understand that from a healthcare professional perspective, you know, doctors, nurses and the broader profession, I think we all have a central role in, in health system adaptation, thinking about 
what the mitigation is and we need to, uh, in understanding how we maximize the health benefits of any intervention and how we also communicate the need for an accelerated response and how we are you know providing the education training and, and being well versed on that so so i think on the clinical uh, and healthcare professional side of things we have a responsibility in terms of adaptation for national health systems this change is underway and i meant and you mentioned some of it but you know impressively we've seen um you know health services in, in nearly 90 countries who are now connected with their uh, equivalent uh, uh, meteorological services to help us with uh, health adaptation planning. We're seeing in nearly 50 countries where uh, the global spending and health adaptation has risen to nearly 5% of all adaptation spending uh, across the region in the country. Um, you know, the health sector in general it is responsible for a, a tremendous amount of global greenhouse gases. I think nearly 5% that was seen in 2017. Uh, and it's really important to take some steps to reduce those emissions. So in the UK, uh, as an example, the National Health Service has declared an ambition to deliver a net zero health service as soon as possible. And, and we're seeing that with, like you said, the Western Australian Department of Health, as well as the uh, German Federal Ministry of Health. They've all established dedicated departments on health protection and the sustainability response to climate related matters. And I think this, this is a real testament on, on the, the uh, progress, progress that we are making now. The exciting part with all of this is that, um, you know, the shifts are also being translated into the broader public discourse. And I think that the coverage that we're seeing now in health and climate change in the media, thinking about how we are talking about this, the fact that we are doing this podcast is an example of how this is now becoming, coming to the forefront of, of people's minds and attentions. And, uh, and I believe, you know, this is just the beginning of, of a big shift uh, and, and we will see that change uh, coming over the next decade or so. Uh, and we've talked about the role of technology earlier, but you know, that may also play a tremendous role in thinking about how do we reduce and achieve the net zero uh, targets that have been set out and reduce the, the emission of greenhouse gases because of that. So you know, telemedicine, as an example, being that, so having to avoid taking two or three buses or using your car to get to the hospital and parking up, you know, that's just a simple example. But I think we are heading to an era where this is now becoming uh, a priority for many health systems and governments. Uh, and I hope to see uh, big changes on that front. My, my next question, that's, that's really interesting. And it's interesting to hear you say the numbers of on the health departments that are connecting with their, with their meteorological, um, their various meteorological departments as well, so that they're able to understand. By way of individual response, you know, what sorts of conversations should people be having with their with their general practitioners? Should should you be sitting down with your general practitioner and you know when you know next time you go for a checkup or whatever and saying, what are my comorbidities? Am I you know if if it's a thirty five degree day, what am I at risk of? What should I be thinking about? Um, and then also as a workplace, what should health advisors be saying to workplaces about extreme weather patterns or some of these other issues like how should the institutional structures around us also that aren't just necessarily health departments how should they also be approaching this issue yeah no i, th I think that's a great question um look i think from the individual conversations you know the doors are always open for general practitioners and, and patients to come and talk about various things i think this is going to be uh, an exercise for both uh, clinicians to kind of up their game and really understand the consequences of climate change on health but also you know, the public being more educated about this. I, I don't believe that at this point the public are fully aware, but I do believe that 
COVID's probably got them to realize the importance of understanding what climate change, zoonotic infections, uh, and so on and so forth could mean for health and, and the consequences that can have on society and the economy. Just as an example, you know, I've seen personally a tremendous rise in the number of people coming with mental health issues over the last kind of 12 months or so. But that's just an example to show that people are now more aware, they want to have these conversations, they want to come and get help. So, so on that basis, absolutely to have conversations in order to maximize and help manage their condition with heat, uh, you know, increased risk of their high blood pressure or their diabetes um, or, or, or kind of being exposed to heat strokes, et cetera. So, so I think on that basis, absolutely the case. And we see, we will see more of that. I think, you know, just as an example, I was thinking about this, you know, we, we know who our high-risk patients are in, within our practices. We have the data, but how can we use that data in a more sophisticated way? So, for example, when we know that there is a consequences of a flood or, or a heat wave coming, or, or there might be kind of other consequential uh, issues because of climate change, how great would it be, for example, then for us to reach out to those high-risk patients to let them know, uh, you know, that they are at risk to, be, to help them protect and manage and give them resources and the tools to do that. And I think that's a good way of using the, the data from the Metrological Society or the link versus how the health system is responding to that and, and going out there and, and making a difference from that perspective. So I think there is, is, there is a part to play. And then I think the same applies to workers, offices. So again, uh, where a lot of businesses now have occupational health departments, and I think occupational health has, has a big role to play here to think about who are your uh, workers, who are more exposed to uh, certain conditions, and who will have uh, an impact and consequence if um, they were exposed to, to various things that we've talked about today. And I think on that basis, they, they do have a responsibility, uh, whether it's through education and training for providing resources, but also thinking through how can they help minimize that risk for their workers, uh, for those who are working in, in the field in certain instances, or those who are working in an office environment or, or have an increased risk and exposure to, to various elements of what that might mean. So, so I think there is that. And I think ultimately we all need to come together and think about how can we support this from a uh, individual level at the clinical level with their uh, practices and doctors at the health system level, which will be how can we support that um, and help uh, companies uh, and their workforce essentially. Some very, very sage advice there. Thank you so much, Harpreet, for joining me today. As always, uh, if you or your business has been exposed to or you, if you want to know more about uh, climate change uh, or the impacts of healthcare, you're, all, you're welcome to contact uh, Global Council. You can find contact details for myself and Harpreet and our sectoral teams at the Global Council website, www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. Uh, we'll be hosting uh, a series of other events on this topic, so please stay tuned and you will get more information on that through um, our email drops. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.